0: Good morning. Good morning. And I'm glad to be back. Last weekend I was out in Arizona doing a seminar, and I want to say hi to our new friends out in Arizona. We had a great, great response from the people who attended. Thank Pastor Ron, whose church we were in, and uh, Suarta, uh, Arizona, that was where we were, and Pastor Mark for bringing us out, and let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much for your love, for your kindness, for your truth that you reveal to us, and we ask that your spirit will join us. Bring our hearts together, and let us let us be your agents at this time in human history. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We're doing Lesson 6 in the Quarterly Oneness in Christ, and the title is Images of Unity. And the first paragraph reads, anyone who has studied the Bible knows it is filled with images and symbols and that point to realities greater than those images and symbols themselves. For instance, the essence of the whole biblical sacrificial system is, in a sense, symbolic of the much greater reality, Jesus and the entire plan of salvation. What do you think they mean by in a sense? That just jumped out at me. It is in a sense. What does in a sense mean? Not quite, Not quite, but, but partly. Okay, so is there any part of the Levitical sacrificial system that is not symbolic? Can anybody think of any element in that system that is actually literal? No, you need to delete, in a sense, from this sentence. Every part of that system was symbolic. Every part of it. And it's symbolic, of course, of the true reality, Jesus, and his plan of salvation. So, would that mean, if it's all symbolic and not literal, that the Old Testament sacrificial system was not necessary for salvation? Yes. Correct. Even in Old Testament times? Yes. Is there evidence to support your completely wild and crazy answers that, there, that the Old Testament system was not necessary for salvation in Old Testament times? Is there evidence to that? Naaman. Naaman. Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. The Shunammite woman. Enoch. Rahab. How about the Ninevites? Well, Rahab, I think, we don't have any discussion of it, but She became part of Israel. They would probably argue that once she converted, she started doing all that stuff. How about Daniel and his three friends during the 70-year captivity, and the rest of the Jews during the 70-year captivity? Were they sacrificing a temple? And there's no evidence that Daniel and his friends ever did while they were in captivity. The prophet Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 31-33, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be with their God and they will be my people. Uh, the prophet Hosea wrote in Hosea 6.6, 6, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. David wrote in the Psalms, in Psalms 46, 40 verse 6, You take no delight in sacrifices or offerings, Now that you have made me listen, I finally understand. You don't require burnt offerings or sin offerings. David finally got it. Whoa! Oh, they're not necessary. If the ceremonial sacrificial system wasn't required for salvation during Bible times, what was required for salvation? Same thing that's required now. Which is? A change of heart. A change of heart. Healing the inner person. And, and I was going to ask, but you already answered, is there something different required today? No, same thing is required today. Then if the ceremonial system wasn't required for salvation during Bible times, will it be required today or at some future point? Then why do some Christians teach that in the future there will come a time when the Jews will rebuild their temple and begin sacrificing animals again? Do you know this is a common teaching in Christianity? It was never necessary then. It's not necessary now. It's all symbolic of the larger reality. Why then would that happen? So what was the purpose then of the sacrificial system in Bible times if it wasn't for salvation? Teaching tool. Teaching tool. Is there evidence from Scripture to support me on this? Hebrews 9, 9 and 10 and ten, three 3 and 4 say... The gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying to the time of the new order, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And there's others. Hosea um, 6 says... I want your constant love, not your animal sacrifices. I would rather have my people know me than burn offerings to me. The sacrificial system described and implemented by God was never a means of salvation. Only a means of education about the means of salvation. Do you see the difference? It was a means of education or teaching, or leading to the actual means of salvation. So then what is the means of salvation? The actual way, method, means, avenue to salvation. Acts 4.12 Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved, speaking of Jesus. Jesus is the actual means. Animals are not the means. Jesus is the means. Anybody disagree with me on that? Even if you don't know his name as Jesus. And in Bible culture, what is the significance of a name? There's no other name under heaven whereby men can be saved. Yes, do, do, you, do you think that, or do you think when you hear no other name, well, it's the name of Jesus, and when we're baptized, we have to speak that word, Jesus, and then there's this big argument, well, that's the, that's the Greek way of saying it, really need to say it the Hebrew, Yahshua, and if you've been baptized in the name Jesus, and somebody said Jesus over you, well, that doesn't really count, you've got to go back and have it done again, and somebody's got to say Yahshua when you're being baptized, because that's the real name. Is that what this is talking about when it says the name, it's the word? No, this is silliness, but but many people get caught up in this. It's that's superstitious thinking. Name is about character. There's no other character whereby men can be saved, healed, restored, renewed, reborn, one to trust, recreated, rebuilt. Salvation is the literal, actual, real recreation of God's original design in harmony with his character and laws of life in the species human. First achieved in the individual human being, Jesus Christ, who actually lived a perfect sinless life as a human being. And then gifted to all of us who trust him. And you know, there was nothing legal in that process. Sunday's first paragraph, it says, The church is about people, but not any kind of people. The church is the people of God, the people who belong to God, who claim God as their Father and Savior, and who have been redeemed by Christ and who obey him. This image underscores the concept that God has had a people on earth since the introduction of the plan of salvation, and that there is a continuity between Israel in Old Testament times and the church in the New from the time of Adam, the patriarchs before and after the flood, and Abraham, God has made a covenant with his people to be representatives of his love, mercy, and justice to the world. First off, I like the fact they're talking about people who have loyalty to God or the people of God. I really like the fact they're putting that emphasis. So the question is, what is it that gives people continuity through history in, 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 as God's people? What is it that gives that continuity? So did a person have to be, in Old Testament times, part of the nation of Israel to be part of the people of God? No. No. If someone's a genetic descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, did that autom- make, automatically make them a part of God's people? No. no. Jesus said to those genetic descendants in John eight forty four, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. So Jesus is saying, even though you're genetically descended from Abraham, you're not part of the people of God. You're part of the people of the devil. Do you know how many people still today don't get this idea that it's not about genetics? There's a whole bunch of people that think genetic descendancy from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob somehow makes you special and sets you apart in some way. Jesus said it didn't. What makes a person a part of God's people? A heart-minded character like Christ. A heart-minded character like Christ. And the lesson says that to be part of God's people, that we are to be representatives of his love, mercy, and justice to the world. How did ancient Israel do in representing God's love, mercy, and justice? How have Christians done thus far in human history in representing God's love, mercy, and justice? What do you think? How have we done? Are those three things different? Is love, mercy, and justice? Are they different entities? Are they... Do they in reality, do they look the same? Well, I think if you think functionally, love always does what is right, which is the just thing. Okay, That's what love always does. Love doesn't do wrong things. It does right things, which is the just thing. Isn't that true? And love is always merciful. So... I think it's just I think when you think about it, what you're describing is love can be ex- expressed or seen in multiple different like a like a prism. It, the light can be seen in different shades or colors, and so I think mercy and justice are elements of love. Yeah, my point is, yeah. most of Christianity views them as three separate entities, yeah, and not necessarily related. How would we differentiate God's character, methods, and principles? from that of a sinful world, what we might call Satan's counterfeit methods. How would we differentiate them? You live for others, so not for yourself. Live for others, not for yourself. You love, people free? Truth, love, and freedom. Okay, you're giving good, good, um... Let, let, tr- versus so let's contrast them. Truth, contrasted to lies or deceptions or distortions or misleading people. Love versus, and you said that, Selfishness, the others, or me, freedom versus coercion. coercion, threats, intimidations, design law versus imposed imperial human type law systems, justice, when we, and then, then when we have those in mind, when we think about justice, doing what's right, how do you tell what's right? That's the big question. Do you tell what's right through the lens of how human laws work? We've got rules, and if you break the rules, the right thing to do is to punish the rule breaker. Or, through design law, the right thing to do for those who break the law, they're injuring themselves, they're searing their conscience, hardening their heart, warping their character, or corrupting their physical health. If they're doing physical laws or health laws, then the right thing to do is to reach them with message of truth and love to redeem them or bring them back in harmony with the law. Which is the just thing to do? Punish them for breaking or reach to redeem? Have Christians throughout history, applied the world's methods to their practices. What was the Inquisition? Do you all know? I think we think of the extreme forms of the Spanish Inquisition, but the Inquisition was actually set up in the 13th century, and it it was the Roman Catholics governing, internal system, governing of their people to investigate and police what was considered possible heretical views or, or new views or theology that went against the system's accepted norms. The fi- the, in the 1578 edition, I don't have a copy, no I don't, uh, of the D- Directorium Inquisitorium spelled out the purpose of the inquisitorial penalties. And it says the following, the punishment does not take place primarily on per se for the correction and good of the person punished, but for the public good in order that others may become terrified and weaned away from the evils they would commit. <laughs> <laughs> the birth of terrorism. <laughs> so, so the point here was, if somebody was teaching something that went against the accepted church view, then the Inquisition was to in- investigate, and if it was concluded by the Inquisitor that it's true, then some punishment would be coming upon that person to terrify everyone else from going down that trail. Now, the punishments, if you read history, did not start out simply with the death. They actually had many levels. That They had penance. You might have to carry a cross around for a week. You might have to do a um, pilgrimage and climb so many steps and kiss each each stair on the way up. You might have to do some financial compensation to the organization. Uh, uh, You might not be able to take Mass for a month or two months. You might be... um, Um, uh, not excommunicated, but um, ostracized, ostracized, banished. Banished for a period of time where you can't socialize in your community. Uh, And then, of course, sometimes you were burned at the stake or imprisoned. Now, if the punishments are the mild ones, the censoring you can't lead out in your church if you teach these things, if this is the punishment, the mild ones, Is that make it more acceptable? Is that okay? Is that godly? Is it only cross the line of ungodliness when we imprison and beat or torture physically and kill? Is that when it becomes ungodly? But if we do the same thing with, well, we're going to remove you from office. You can't fellowship in this place anymore. We're going to banish you for a period of time. We're going to disfellowship you. These types of things, is that more godly? Mm-hmm. And isn't it somewhat predictable that you will eventually get to the more severe punishments? If your goal is to, you know, police thoughts that disagree from yours, and you become thought police, uh, regarding the Inquisition, in 1908, the, and by the way, the Inquisition was, was actually done away with except in the Papal States after the French Revolution and the Spanish-American War. And those two things put an end to the Inquisition except in the Papal States. And... And in 1908, the Catholic Church changed the name of the Inquisition to Supreme Sacred Congregation of the Holy Office, and then in 1965, they changed the name again, and it became known today as Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. It's still the Inquisition. They just changed the name. still going today. Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Is it any less problematic if we give it a different name? Like compliance committee. Like compliance committee. That's exactly where I was going. You saw where I was going with this. Sick on a pig. Is it it any different? No, this is the problem that's happening. God's system is not for me to be your conscience for you. That's not how God designed it. Paul says every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind. We present truth in love and we leave people free. Okay. Here's an interesting quotation from A.W. Tozer, a very famous Christian thought leader. The average church has so established itself organizationally and financially that God is simply not necessary to it. So entrenched is its authority and so stable are the religious habits of its members that God could withdraw himself completely from it as he once withdrew the Shekinah from the temple and it could run on for years on its own momentum. Do you disagree with what he just said? No. God withdrew his presence from his chosen people who were called to prepare the world from the first, for the first advent of the Messiah, yes or no? He withdrew his presence. And the system continued on. Do you think this very thing could happen to God's people who are called today to prepare the world for the second advent. This is very serious stuff, guys. This is very serious stuff, and I hope your heart is sad, very sad as we think about this. And I want to ask you, what could cause or what would cause, well, let's ask this first, what did cause the withdrawal of God from the Jewish nation? What, what, why did that happen? What caused it? The people's choice. Rejected. It it a a church. Church. Okay, raise your hand. Let's get, some, let's get some ideas. Yes? They chose Satan's lies. It was their choice. They chose Satan's lie. What other thoughts? Unwilling to learn. Unwilling to learn. Yeah, there's a Thessalonians text that said the, that the wicked uh, die in the end because uh, they did not love the truth and thus be saved. So they didn't have a heart to grow in advancing light or truth. They, wanted, they closed it out. And, and the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and love, and if you're not willing to advance in truth, then you're blocking the Holy Spirit. So yeah, believing lies, which causes us to close our mind, unwillingness to follow truth that would make us change our understanding. Yes, what else? They were following the wrong God. They were following a God who did coerce, um, that needed to be appeased. So they had an authoritarian God who was a punishing God, which is basically paganism. And that was their concept of of God. And they wouldn't be corrected, even when the apostles and the prophets, and I read you some of the Old Testament prophets here, where they were coming to the messages and what they do to Jeremiah and what they do to all these prophets. And then when Jesus himself comes, what do they do to Jesus? Okay, They would not accept the light that God is not like this thing that you're worshiping, this authoritarian dictator who makes up rules. And when you break his rules, he's got to punish you. That is not who God is. God is like Jesus. And they rejected that. Yes, another hand somewhere. As a nation, they rejected Christ as the Messiah. And of course, they rejected Christ as the Messiah, which means they're rejecting the, the truth about who God is. Yes. What is the ultimate motive of the individual organization? Is it to bring us to God and to seek truth? Or is it power and any threat to power and self, uh, putting self first within uh Need to be seen as protect uh, self organization. So, what was the high priest? What did the high priest say to the Sanhedrin during the trial of Christ? It is better that no one one then. No. No. So, what was the focus on doing what's right no. or protecting the institution? We must protect the institution. We must protect even if we kill an innocent. It doesn't matter. We must protect the institution. That's what you're saying. So we just looked at maybe some factors that caused the withdrawal of the Shekinah from God's people who were called to prepare the world for the first advent. What then, let's see if we can apply that wisdom. What would cause God to withdraw his presence from an organization today? People rejecting him and choosing self. Other thoughts? Boy, you guys had a lot to say about ancient Israel. It's <laughs> <laughs> the same thing same, same, same Um Our church worships an authoritarian. Some people, right? Some people. Yep. This is the battle. And I'm bringing this up because the Bible says we're in a war. Though we don't wage wars the world does, the weapons we use are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against... The knowledge of God and take captive every thought. We are in a war, as you're saying, over the God concept being worshiped organizationally and throughout the world. This is what it really centers on. And the God concept we worship, where we are in our understanding of how He runs His universe, then causes us, by design law, law of worship, by beholding, we become changed. We neurobiologically and characterologically change based on the God that we worship. And we begin practicing those methods in how we treat other people, and so we accept a false view of God, that false view of God sets itself up in the spirit temple, proclaiming himself to be God, and thus we go out and misrepresent God. Is God going to pour his spirit, his Shekinah glory, on people who go out to misrepresent him? So I I think it's exactly right. We have this Distorted view of God infecting all of Christianity regardless of denomination. My book, The God-Shaped Heart, documents that very clearly, that it is across denominational landscapes. It's not exclusive to any denomination, but it's a, because, because, as we just read, the people of God cross the whole world. And this battle is battle for every human heart and mind. And so people have to decide, do you, do you prefer a God like Jesus revealed, a God who, whose methods are presenting truth in love, and leaving you free to make up your own mind? Or, or do you prefer a God who says, hey, here's my rules. If you don't keep them, I will torture and kill you. God's methods are not the methods of the world. God's methods are to present the truth and love and leave people free. And as soon as the institutions begin using coercive and compelling power, compliance power, they stop advancing God's kingdom and instead advance the kingdom of the enemy. The beastly system. That's what's happened. That's what. That's what. That's what this. We're, we're heading down a trail. Yes. But they're doing it for your good. Right. Yes. They burned people to stake so they could then give them last rites and send their souls to heaven. They just wanted to save those souls. That's what love looks like. Mm-hmm. If I love you, I beat you till you comply. <laughs> so, what would actual justice look like in God's kingdom? This is Jeremiah. Excuse me. This is Psalms eighty-two, three. Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the needy. Or I'll read the Jeremiah one, Jeremiah 21, 12. 12. This is what the Lord says to the dynasty of David. Give justice each morning when you judge. Help those who have been robbed. Rescue them from their oppressors. See, biblical justice is what we talked about. It's design law stuff. When you see somebody suffering, when you see somebody drowning, somebody's drowning, and you have the ability, you have a life preserver, you, you know how to swim, you have, the, you have a, a, one of those hooks you can pull them out of the water, you have the ability to save them. What's the just and right thing for you to do? That's biblical justice. Saving people who are drowning in sin. That's biblical justice. Because... Breaking God's law or breaking the protocols upon which He built life. But we have accepted the lie that God's law functionally is like imperial law, human law, and therefore when you break it, justice requires infliction of punishment. And thus we teach a whole theological thing that is just a, a straight out of hell, I'm going to tell you. It's straight out of hell. And God needs something done to pay some penalty, to adjust some books in heaven. So what do you think interferes with Christianity's ability to rightly represent God throughout history and, and today? What, what's in the way? Focus on self. How about, though, when, when people get up there and they, and they publicly humble themselves with tears and cry, they only want to follow the Lord's will, and they don't want attention on self, they want to put their attention to Christ, and they proclaim that consistently. Does that mean then what we can follow their leadership? No, it depends on which Christ they want to proclaim. See, so some people are truly trying to be focusing on the Christ that they serve. They're not trying to bring attention to themselves. Does that mean that they're necessarily presenting the truth? You have to know him. Have to know him. And even then, we're fallible, and so for each one of us, simply to be able to continually hold Christ and God as the epitome of whom we seek and understand that we're all broken and that we all take those strands. See what you think about this idea, that Satan's methods are to define an established way of thinking and then use coercive measures to compel conformity to the established way of thinking, regardless of whether the idea is true or false. Think that one through. Everyone, I think, would jump on board. If it's a falsehood, then that's Satan's way. But if it's a truth, well, no, then it's okay to enforce. We've got to enforce the truth. But I'm going to suggest to you, even if it's the truth, if you are using authoritarian measures to enforce it, you're promoting Satan's kingdom, not God's. For instance, a simple one. Accepting Jesus as your Savior. And if you don't, we'll burn you at the stake. That is not the way you advance the kingdom, even though it's true that Jesus is our Savior. I think one of the defining characteristics of the people of God, regardless of where we are in the continuum, is that we're open. Um, We're searching for truth. We're wanting to grow. Whenever we stop and start drawing lines, that's when we stop listening to the Holy Spirit and we go down the wrong path. Because... And I know I've said this before, but I've been in the other hand. I believed in a God who would do terrible things, and and people around me were saying, "Well, that happened to you because God allowed it." I'm sorry, that's not how it works. But even then, I was willing and open and wanting to grow and learn. And so then I I kept I kept doing that. It's when we draw the lines in the sand and say we. This is it. This is very well said. And and, And whether you realize it or not, you were describing and articulating multiple biblical principles. Knock, and it will be seek, and ye shall... Okay? God can't grow you without your investment in the growth. Did you hear me? It's like you can't learn to speak a new language without your efforts and desire to speak that new language. And so the way the truth, because the way character works, God can create sinless beings, but God cannot create mature character. Mature character is formed by the action of the individual and the choices they make. And our opportunity is to choose to trust God and to have a heart. And so one of the foundational bricks that I put in my personal sense of self. Who is Tim Jennings? Who am I? And we all have a a sense of self. Who are we? One of my foundational bricks that I put in some decades ago was I'm a person who is a finite being who doesn't know everything, but I'm open to grow. I'm open to grow. I, I, I have a hunger for the truth. And that's what led me years ago to come up with this truism that I tell many of my patients and I put it places. You can never avoid the truth. You can only delay the day you deal with it. And I don't want to delay the day. So I started praying, Lord, give me a mind that can assimilate new truth as soon as I possibly am capable of it, not a mind that resists it to the last possible moment. There was a time in my life when I, I, I approached life that way. There were some truths I didn't want to deal with in my life. There's some things I didn't want to address and so it's like denial, distortion, avoidance, don't deal with it. And life was not better. Life got much better even though there were some things I had to face that were not pretty things. Life got much better when I became a lover of truth. So that's a biblical principle. So I think that's well said and that really will distinguish The saved from the lost. The lost are those who've closed themselves to truth. They have their doctrines. They know what the right is, and they're going to enforce it. So what's currently happening in our church is a move towards top-down, authoritarian methods of compliance and or enforcement. And this is the outworking of the wrong law concept of Satan's view of God's kingdom. This is what it's an outworking of. Those at level four, level four, law and order, right and wrong is determined by a system of rules with um, external enforcement. That's how you know what's right and wrong, by looking at the rules, okay? Um, those at level four will make all types of excuses about what I'm just saying and deny and distort and attempt to justify their actions rather than understanding how God's systems and methods actually work, which is what you said earlier, truth. Present in love, leaving people free. And that's why the Adventist church, when it was initially organized, was organized with local control, not central control, because how truth unfolds in any domain, whether it is medical science, whether it's uh, um, uh, technical science, whether it's biblical truth, how truth unfolds is with individuals getting epiphanies getting uh, ideas and they and they begin testing or applying those truths and and they convert or share with other people who test and it works and there's usually resistance and people argue because they like the old ways better but the truth eventually is demonstrated to be superior to the previous held ideas and it spreads locally usually and then regionally and our church was set to allow for spiritual because god's infinite we're finite we should be constantly growing in our knowledge and understanding of him and his kingdom and so it's set up for, for, for points of light to rise up in the organization and, and share in their local community. And and if it's true, then it will grow, and it grows in the hearts of those people. And they share it in their conference, and they share it in their union. And eventually, over decades, it will spread around the world church, and at a world conference, a general conference, the world church will, will be, as a whole, ready to update its current understanding. But with the top-down view, we have described and defined, here are the acceptable views, and then what happens is we have to enforce those. We have to overlook the shoulder of everybody. Now, here's a group over here, and they're, and they're teaching the, you know, that women are, are equal to men. And, and, and that, that's just not appropriate. We know that women are not equal to men. The, the Bible has said for years they shouldn't even be speaking in church. Why do we even allow them to talk? They should go home and just talk to their husbands. And so we know that's not right. We have to to stop that because the church will be upside down and turned over if we don't stop that. And so we're going to make a rule that that, that they never can have that point of leadership in the church. And anyone in this group over here who tries that, well, we have to kick them out. We have to kick them out. And what's, what's happening to advancing light and truth? On any issue. And it's not whether women should be ordained. That's not the question. It's the question, how do you approach it? You see, if you look historically at the Adventist Church, many false ideas had tried to take root in our church. Some of you who know the Adventist history know about the Branch Davidians or the Shepherd's Rod movement that tried to take root in the organization. Top down authority did not have to make a bunch of rules, it just wouldn't take root because it was a lie. It did not take root, it did not grow. Oh, yes, there are individuals who might have been deceived, but that was a small number of people, and it never took off, and the organization never grew with those constructs and ideas because it was wrong. We've seen this before, right? So why do we have to do this now? Because equality of women is a biblical truth, and there are men who are filled with selfishness in their heart, and they do not want to allow that truth, and they're trying to stop it. That's what's happening. And it's very scary, people second paragraph said, God's people are called as a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. These terms indicate that they are set aside for a special purpose, to proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. This also is the echo of the description of God's gracious characters described in Exodus 34. God acquired... God acquired the church as his own special possession in order that its members might reflect his precious traits of character in their own lives and proclaim his goodness and mercy to all men. I think that's well said. That's what the church is for. Question, though. What is meant by moving from darkness to light? Darkness about what? It's not talking physical darkness. i not, not having photons. It's a metaphor for enlightenment of your mind or having a darkened mind. So darkened about what? And what do we need to be enlightened about? Darkened about who God is. And so what does it say, of course, in John chapter 1? There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light. So that the uh, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was, is, was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. Now what did Jesus come into the world to enlighten the world about? Which day is the Sabbath? That's, that's the key test. If you know, he said, hey, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And now you know I'm Lord of the Sabbath, you know what the right Sabbath is, and that's the key test at the end of time. And if you don't have that right day, then you're in the darkness and you're going to be lost. That, that was, that was, he came to enlighten us about that. Yes or no? No, he didn't. You can have the right day of the week, biblical Sabbath, and put Christ on the cross and want him off by sunset. The key, the light, is who is God? Who is the God that you worship? That's the key. This is a quote out of a book called My Life Today by one of the founders of the Adventist Church. It's on page 59. It says, Every truly converted soul will be intensely desirous to bring others from the darkness of error into the marvelous light of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The great outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Spirit, which enlightens the whole world with his glory, will not come until we have an enlightened people that know by experience what it means to be laborers together with God. When we, have enti- when we have entire wholehearted consecration to the service of Christ, God will recognize the fact by outpouring of his spirit without measure. But this will not be while the largest portion of the church are not laborers together with God. We cannot- God cannot pour out his spirit when selfishness and self-indulgence are so, manif- are so manifest. When the hearts of the believers are warm with love for God, they will do a continual work for Jesus. They will manifest the meekness of Christ and display the steadfast purpose that will not fail nor, nor be discouraged. We asked earlier about re- withdrawing the, the presence, withdrawing the Shekinah, withdrawing the glory. Uh, this would suggest that, in fact, God can't pour his spirit out upon people who are bent on self-centeredness that you mentioned earlier that we have to come back to a heart that loves God, loves his methods, and are open to him. The lesson asks in this lesson, why God chose Abraham and his descendants for the purpose of being an avenue of God's truth and ultimately the Messiah. Why did God choose Abraham? Any thoughts on that? Because Abraham responded. Love it. Because Abraham was willing. See, could we have a record of Abraham because Abraham was willing. He trusted God, and we don't have a record of other people that maybe God approached, but they said no to God. Is that possible? Has anyone ever heard of William Foy and Hazen Foss? (laughs) Anyone ever heard of them? For those who haven't, uh, I've got a quotation in here, a historical from Wikipedia. Uh, William Foss was an African-American free will Baptist minister and uh, living from 1818 to 1893 uh, and preacher of the Millerite movement who claimed to receive four visions from 1842 to 1844. Uh, and he did not feel comfortable as an African-American uh, in 1800s of taking this message forward and, and that, that he felt that God had given him. And so he did not have any more visions after those four. And then... Um, Hazen Foss, another Miller who lived eight, uh, 1888 to 18, uh, 18, 18 to 1893, um, was another Millerite who claimed to receive several visions, however, he refused to proclaim them, and God told him he was released from the ministry that God called him, and then Ellen White received those visions. Adventist Church takes the position that the Holy Spirit moved on these two people before Ellen White, and she was the third to be called. that 's the official position. Could we know about Abraham because Abraham accepted God's call and maybe there were others who didn't? Last paragraph. Perhaps we could ask ourselves, what country today deserves the label of holy nation? Another image of the church. None. All nations and ethnic groups are composed of people who do not deserve God's love and grace. And though the Bible calls us to be a holy people, Scripture also teaches that the selection and establishment of Israel is based entirely on his love and not on any merits that the human being could bring to him. What do you think of this idea that all nations and ethnic groups are composed of people who do not deserve God's love and grace? I hate the word deserve. What is being taught? What do you. I don't want to project my maybe biases in here uh, as best as we honestly can what do you think they're trying to say here um, that we're bad and because we're bad we don't deserve His love and grace that's what i think they're trying to say am i, am I misunderstanding it? anybody help me out or do you think that's what they're trying to say because we're sinful so then does that mean the unfallen angels in heaven do deserve god's love but sinners on earth do not deserve god's love Is that what that means? Because if that's true, then this is what we call conditional love. You only get the love from God if you're good. If you're not good, you don't get love. Well, Jesus said in Matthew 5.46 the following. Why should God reward you if you love only the people who love you? Even the tax collectors do that. Hmm. Do we believe God only loves people who are good? Are beings who are good. No. What does John 3.16 mean? For God so loved the good people <laughs> that he gave his only begotten son. Is that what it says? No. Did he select Israel because he loved them while he did not love the other people of the world? No. Do we understand that the phrase then, to be loved by God, has two meanings. To be loved by God has two meanings. To be loved in God's heart, God has love in his heart. That's one meaning. God loves you. But to be loved by God also has the experience in your life of God's love. We respond to and open a heart and are functionally changed by the power of his love working in us. We are being loved by God. Do you see how it has two meanings? God loves us. We are loved by God because he loves us, period. However, are we being loved by God by opening the heart and allowing that love to go through us? We're being loved functionally by God. Do you see the difference? And thus we're being transformed and changed. So Abraham responded and opened his heart. Thus God's love could operate in Abraham and many of Abraham's descendants. So even though from God's heart he loves all people, not all people open their heart to experience his love to be loved by him. Does that make sense? It's a subtle little distinction in the language, but it's a profound distinction in reality. Because you'll see things like, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. And if we're talking about God's attitude, you're exactly right. But if we're talking about the experience of being loved, it's a lie, and this is a subtle lie of Satan, because there's lots you can do to be loved functionally and operationally more by God, to open your heart to have more love flow through you, to be transformed more powerfully by that love. I'm being loved by God in a much greater way than somebody else who is worshiping Satan. Does that make sense? It's huge. So don't fall into this. Sounds really good. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. You can go out and, and do all the wicked things in the world. And God loves you just as much. There's nothing you can do to earn it and make him love you more. Sounds really cool. And I know many young people who go out and then just, well, he loves me just as much no matter what I do. In his heart, he does. But your heart doesn't experience the love. And so your functional experience of love is not what it would be had you chosen a different path. And what was Israel selected for by God? What was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants selected for? To be the exclusive recipients of truth, love, and salvation? Or to be agents to help God reach the entire world and also be the avenue for Messiah to reach the entire world? So consider this out of Isaiah 19, 18 through 25. See if, if this idea that I'm about to communicate to you is the common way you see the world, and historically have seen Old Testament, and historically the worldview you've always held of the Bible. See if this is what you've always held. When that time comes, this is Isaiah 19, 18 through 25. When that time comes, the Hebrew language will be spoken in five Egyptian cities. The people there will take their oaths in the name of the Lord Almighty. One of the cities will be called the City of the Sun. When that time comes, there will be an altar to the Lord in the land of Egypt and a stone pillar dedicated to him in that Egyptian border. They will be symbols of the Lord Almighty's presence in Egypt. When the people there are oppressed and call out to the Lord for help, he will send someone to rescue them. The Lord will reveal himself to the Egyptian people, and they will acknowledge and worship him and bring him sacrifices and offerings. They will make solemn promises to him and do what they promise. The Lord will punish the Egyptians, but then he will heal them. They will turn to him, and and he will hear their prayers and heal them. When that time comes, there will be a highway between Egypt and Assyria. The people of those two countries will travel to and fro between them. And the two nations will worship together. When that time comes, Israel will rank with Egypt and Assyria. And these three nations will be a blessing to all the world. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, I will bless you, Egypt, my people, you Assyria, whom I created, and you, Israel, my chosen people. Is this how you historically think and see the Bible? The Egyptians and the Assyrians are also God's people. Is that how we have been brought up to think? You see, you need to go back and see the world through how the New Testament, Paul talks about it, through Adam, all have sinned. And through Christ, all can be made holy. The whole world was in Adam and Eve And the whole world was condemned by their condition, their terminal state when they broke God's design. Born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We all suffer from the same condition and we all need the same remedy, regardless of ethnicity. So what does it then mean to be part of the people of God? To trust God, receive his spirit, and be transformed in heart to be like him, regardless of ethnicity, nationality, or denomination. And do you understand that that last one, for some people that I just said, makes me a heretic? Because for some people, denomination determines whether you're part of the remnant, not character. Monday's lesson, first paragraph, Another image of the people of God in the New Testament is the house or household of God. It is a metaphor of stones and buildings that highlight the intricate and interdependent nature of the human relationships. So we're going to kind of, kind of go through this. I think there's some really interesting points from the rest of the week. Let's see if we can hit some of the highlights. When you think of a house, what spiritual lessons can we draw from a house that might apply? How about this? When you think of a house, do you think of a shelter? Do you think of a place of safety? A place of sustenance and nurture. A place for family. A place for children to grow. A place for love and fellowship and marriage. Okay? Do these apply to the church? When you think of the church, do you think of a shelter? But do you? Do you think of a place of safety? Do you think of a place where you'll be nurtured? And strengthened? Do you think of a place of family? where children can grow, a place for love, fellowship, marriage? Can houses become places of abuse and injury? Can churches become destructive places? What causes a church to change from a place of healing to a place of injury or destruction? What would cause a church to do that? What is their motive and their mission? It's not built on a stable foundation. I agree with you. Mission, not foundation. So, not Christ-focused. Would it? Would it? Would you think their system of right and wrong and their method of determining right and wrong would have any bearing on that? And if they're imperial and authoritarian, would that have a bearing on it, rather than design law and and, and healing? Tuesday's lesson, first paragraph. Another building imagery Paul uses is that the temple of God or. Uh, is that of the temple of God or this, of the Holy Spirit. It is the image of a costly and valuable building, along with 1 Corinthians 6.19, where the image refers to one's personal body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 uh, uses the image to refer to the most holy and precious edifice of the ancient Near East, God's temple. So, when you think, is there a difference in your mind between the temple of God, the sanctuary of God, God's house, and the heavenly sanctuary? Are those different things? I'll say it again. Temple of God, or God's temple. Sanctuary of God, God's house, or the heavenly sanctuary. Are those different things, or the same thing? And from what is the temple in heaven, God's temple, constructed from? What material is used to build it? This is a very critical question. If you ever deal with certain, shall we say, concrete thinkers... You know what a concrete thinker is? Okay, they, they can't abstract. <clears throat> Sorry, I got a frog in my throat. Dr. Jennings is eating amphibians. That's a concrete thinker. Okay? They can't abstract. Concrete thinkers think the heavenly sanctuary is built out of brick and mortar. Well, golden bricks and silver mortar. Really? That's what they think. With pearls on the gates. That's what they think the heavenly sanctuary is built out of. The Bible says, Ephesians 2, 19-22, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or aliens, but fellow citizens of God's people, members of God's house, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself, the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. So we have a building, we have a house, we have a temple, all in one passage here. And in him you too being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Or 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by man, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a house, a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood. Does this description just mean the the, the church on earth? Or is this describing the temple in heaven? Because many People I've talked with theologians, say that's describing the church invisible on earth. That is not the temple in heaven. The temple in heaven is built out of gold and silver and other inanimate materials. Here's a quote out of a book called Acts of the Apostles, page 598 and 599. See what you think of this quote. See if you think it agrees with what we just read out of scripture. Through the ages, through the ages that have passed since the days of the apostles, the building of God's temple has never ceased. We may look back through the centuries and see that the living stones of which it is composed gleaming like jets of light through the darkness of error and superstition. Throughout eternity, these precious jewels, what are the precious jewels that's being referred to here in this metaphor? These are people, the living stones is what it's referred. These precious jewels will shine with increasing luster, testifying to the power of the truth of God. The flashing light of these polished stones, again, referring to people, reveals the strong contrast between light and darkness, between the gold of truth and the dross of error. Paul and the other apostles, all the righteous who have lived since then, have acted their part in the building of the temple. But the structure is not yet complete. We who are living in this age have a work to do, a part to act. We are to bring to the foundation material that will stand the test of fire, gold, silver, and precious stones, polished after the similitude of a palace. To those who thus build for God, Paul speaks words of encouragement. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. The Christian who faithfully presents the word of God, leading men and women, into the way of holiness and peace, is bringing to the foundation material that will endure, And in the kingdom of God, he will be honored as a wise builder. What do you think this is talking about? Is this temple that both Bible and this quote describes as being built out of living stones, a literal temple made out of real material? Or is it metaphorical, symbolic, ethereal, not literal, no substance? What, What do you think? Real, with real physical matter? What do you think, guys? I think it's our heart and our mind. Okay, it's, <laughs> it's real, guys, with real physical matter. Unless you think when we get to heaven we won't have bodies. We have bodies that are made out of the soil of the earth, but they're perfected and sinless bodies? Will that be real physical material? Can I, will I be able to touch my wife in heaven? Or will we be mist that just can't, there's, no, there's nothing to us, just mist? Get your mind around. The building material is real. There's a real physical building structure in heaven made out of physical beings. It's real, literal. It's just not made out of inanimate material. It's made out of living material. If you don't like that one, maybe out of the book called Desire of Ages, you'll enjoy this one. In the cleansing of the temple, because, because I want to ask the question, if the temple is built out of living beings... Then what about the cleansing of the temple? 2,300 years and the sanctuary or temple will be cleansed. Do you actually understand that as cleansing of people? Or do you see that as a legal process of books and records? When you think about Paul in Thessalonians saying that the man of sin will arise and he will set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. What temple is Paul talking about? the spirit temple, where we've accepted this pagan view of an imperial dictator who punishes sin, and thus the temple's contaminated. So the prophecy about 2300 years for the temple to be cleansed is telling that at the end of time before Christ comes, we're going to reject this dictator view of God, and we're going to come worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and sea, and we're going to have our minds and hearts cleansed. But let's read out of Desire of Ages. In the cleansing of the temple, Jesus was announcing his mission as Messiah and entering upon his work. That temple, erected for the abode of the divine presence, was designed to be an object lesson for Israel and the world. From eternal ages, it was God's purpose that every created being, from the bright and holy seraph to man, should be a temple for the indwelling of the creator. Because of sin, humanity ceased to be a temple for God. Darkness and defiled by evil, the heart of man no longer revealed the glory of the divine one. But by the incarnation of the Son of God, the purpose of heaven is fulfilled. God dwells in humanity. And through saving grace, the heart of man becomes again his temple. God designed that the temple at Jerusalem should be a continual witness to the high destiny open to every soul. But the Jews had not understood the significance of the building They regarded with so much pride They did not yield themselves as holy temples for the divine spirit The courts of the temple of Jerusalem Filled with the tumult of unholy traffic Represented too truly the temple of the heart Defiled by the presence of sensual passion and unholy thoughts In cleansing the temple from the world's buyers and sellers Jesus announced his mission To cleanse the heart from the defilement of sin Did anyone say, I don't like that? I'd much rather have my record book it's much easier to just get some magic eraser ink and erase the, the written down you know, record that the angels have been writing all these years and then for those Adventists who really have been indoctrinated with a certain prophecy of Daniel 8 I'm going to read you this out of faith I live by by the same author, page 207 the coming of Christ as our high priest to the most holy place for the cleansing of the sanctuary brought to view in Daniel eight fourteen, The coming of the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days is represented in Daniel seven thirteen, And the coming of the Lord to his temple foretold by Malachi are descriptions of the same event. And do you understand what the Malachi description is? Go and read it, Malachi 3. The Lord you're seeking will suddenly come to his temple. He will come and as a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap, he will refine or cleanse the Levites. It's the same event, guys. This thing you've been told that's happening in some books, in some legal accounting process, and records in some distant place off in the universe is a distortion of the truth. The truth is is that God wants a people on earth that are cleansed to know, their minds are cleansed from the lies, their hearts are cleansed from selfishness, and they become like him, because it says when he comes, we shall see him face to face, for we shall be like him. This is the cleansing. This is the message for this time. And this other penal legal thing is part of the darkness, the lie, the distortion that obstructs good Christian folks from, number one, experiencing the true cleansing of heart so they can be free and for being lights in the world. And thus the delay and the delay because God is waiting for people to finally know him and know his character, have their spirit temple cleansed and become a light to share this world or share this message gracious father in heaven we thank you so much that you are an amazing creator god who built the universe to operate in your harmony with your character of love and that your laws are the principles and protocols of all reality exist and are there for our health and our welfare and our and our happiness lord cleanse our minds from the distortions that leave us in fear of you and cleanse our hearts from these desires to to promote self and protect self because we've come back into a trust relationship with you. We don't have to watch out for self. You're watching out for us. And open the avenues for this message to go forward. Remove the obstacles. In this time in earth's history, Lord, we pray for the outpouring of your spirit to empower and enlighten us to be lights in your world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.